Welcome everyone to this interview edition of Monday Match Analysis. I'm Gil Gross. Today's episode is a conversation with John Wertheim. If you're a tennis fan, you're probably familiar with him. He's a senior writer and an executive editor at Sports Illustrated, a commentator at Tennis Channel, and a correspondent with 60 Minutes. Quite frankly, I don't think there's anyone better at covering the nexus of tennis and worldly issues than John Wertheim. So I wanted to take advantage of that. There's talk about the pandemic, uh, references to Michael Jordan and the UFC. Um, I was able to uh, pry some some information out of him on the U.S. Open because John's uh, really well-sourced with the USTA and, and the tournament. And I was really happy with how many topics we got to in a span of uh, a little over 30 minutes. So without further ado, John Wertheim. We're joined for the first time by John Wertheim. He's a senior writer and executive editor for Sports Illustrated, a commentator for Tennis Channel, and a 60 Minutes correspondent. Kind enough to join us on this Friday afternoon. John, how are you? Good, thanks. All things considered. I don't know. Is, any, is anyone good these days? I'm, uh, I'm <laughs> as, good, as good as could be. I uh, hope you are too. Yeah, you almost have to adjust the question slightly, exactly. right? Exactly. So I, I promise you've come on a tennis show, but I still want to start with UFC because I once heard you say that tennis is, is just um, MMA with a racket. And it made me smile because it's the kind of thing that I would say and people would look at me like I have 10 eyes. So how do you defend that statement? Oh, man. I, th- I always say uh, – I, I, I once had a – throwaway line that uh my my two favorite sports are tennis ufc and one of them is vicious damaging one-on-one gladiatorial sport and the other is cage fighting um i you know i mean there there are a lot of similarities and i i just think we sometimes gloss over individual versus team sports but they're really such a different exercise they attract such a different kind of athlete the training is different the rhythms are different um, I mean, I always say even even in MMA, you know, once every five minutes, you get to go, you know, once uh, in between rounds, you get you get 60 seconds of your corner telling you what to do and puffing you up and giving you fluids. Tennis is really, you know, I, I always like the Agassi line about uh, solitary confinement. But, uh, but I think, I mean, you know, obviously getting blasted out if you saw the fight the other, uh, I guess it was two nights ago. I don't know if you watched, mm-hmm. uh, you watched the fight the other night where, um, you know, Anthony Smith. Uh, we're, we're Glover. Yeah, Anthony Smith. You, you know where I'm going with this. Where, yeah. uh, where, where Glover was, was beating Anthony Smith and he picked up his teeth and handed them to the ref. <laughs> we don't see uh, Ali Risk or uh, Riley Opelka hasn't had to pick up his teeth in the middle of a match too many times. Um, but get out the, the physical damage and there actually, I, I think, are a lot of, a lot of overlap there. It's close a couple years back. Medvedev and Tsitsipas, you know, that got a little sketchy. But, but you're right. We, we haven't <laughs> quite gotten to that length. But, but yeah, so UFC, as you just alluded to, it's the first real high-level sport back uh, in, the, in the age of this pandemic. And, uh, of course, it's been held with no fans. But interestingly enough, I found it to be completely and utterly enjoyable, in some respects even better than the product that they – the TV product, at least – with the fans because the natural sound is so good. You can hear all the strikes. You can mm-hmm. hear the corner – uh, yelling instructions, but I don't know if if tennis stands to benefit in the same way from from no fans. 
Yeah, I, I don't know. Hold on a sec. I, I don't know about, I mean, it's, it's a little bit different, but I, I still think it's way better than nothing. And uh, sure. no, I mean, I think you're right. In, in MMA, you're so locked in. You're not really playing to the crowd. It's not the kind of sport where, uh, you know, the people are dancing in the suites. I think you're absolutely right. I think not only can you hear the corner, but you can hear the broadcast through the ringside. I mean, through, through the cage side mic. Um, and I think, you know, you get on fights on faster. Or there, there's less time in between the fights. I mean, I think MMA actually lends itself pretty well. I mean, I mean, I do think, I don't know if you saw the New York Times piece. I mean, I do think there are some safety hazards. And uh, it, I do worry sort of uh, we're not going to be quite as optimistic about this when there are some of these safety violations. But, um, no, I mean, I think, I don't know if you saw the Tennis Channel matches from Florida, the, the UTR event. Mm-hmm. It wasn't the same. I mean, we we all would have preferred to be uh, gearing up for the French Open. But, you know, after five minutes of there are no ball kids or no fans, these guys are calling their own lines, it, it still looked like pro tennis to me. So I, I think tennis can really benefit here. And I, I think um, it would be nice to see – I mean, I you know, the U.S. Open, as we record this, the U.S. Open is hell-bent on trying to figure out a way to make this thing happen. Um, I'm not pessimistic but not optimistic. But I do think tennis ought to be taking advantage of this opportunity. And you've got two, two athletes 40, 50 feet apart, so there's no social distancing problem there. And I'll, I mean, I'm not talking Federer Nadal. I mean, you know, I'll, I'll watch – pick two names. You know, Philip, Philip Kohlschreiber play Vasek Pospisil without ball kids and calling their own lines um, if it means getting pro tennis back. So I, I think there's – I think you're right. I think MMA and UFC is extraordinary. You really don't – concentrate on the crowd during the action and in some ways it enhances it I think I think that's really perceptive but mm-hmm. I think tennis definitely could return in some form and I think will return soon in some form yeah I'd like I'd love to get to the the U.S. Open in a moment but speaking of the exhibitions I agree with you one of the one of the main advantages that I think the the UTR uh, pro event had is the camera angle was fantastic. It's where the the fan in the front row would generally sit. So that's one advantage you have right there. All in all, I would actually like to see tennis in uh, in the kind of domestic exhibition trend that we that we may see. Take a page out of MMA's book. Instead of doing round robin fast four, build a card. That way you can market these individual matchups. Put some prize money in there. I mean. What are the chances that for the for the next couple couple months or we don't know how long that it's really about which exhibition is able to get it right? Um, yeah, I mean, I don't. I think this is all sort of stopgap stuff, and I don't know how much pressure there is to get it right. I mean, you sort of hold, hold it. Everyone gets a couple of shekels. We get some tennis. You move on. I mean, I don't think anyone's looking to sort of really innovate. But I think you're right. I mean, if you had, um, I mean, UTR is sponsoring this. And if you had all the players who were, you know, 12.81 against 12.81, 12.82, you know, you sort of did it UFC style where you basically built up to the two players with the highest UTR. I, I think it's a really interesting way to do that. Um, I mean, round robin, obviously, has its advantages as well. Um, but I, I think there's a lot that tennis ought to be taking away. One of them, we always have this, this idea of regional tours sort of circulates every now and then. And for a variety of reasons, some of them – expense related some of them environmental some of them hey if american fans had more events with more american players would they be more inclined to watch the majors i think regional tours is something that uh, 
might get a little shot in the arm here. But, you know, I mean, I think UFC is trying to basically, you know, build and sustain its business. I think some of these exhibitions are fun and they're sort of stopgap measures and it's a way for tournaments and, and promoters and TV and the, the players can make a little money. But I, I don't think anyone's looking at it quite the way UFC is. Um, if there were a right. tour event, that would be a different story. The breaking news today is that the ITF has suspended all competition through July 31st. That means the Hall of Fame Open is canceled. I believe that also encapsulates Atlanta's date. Um, but something that I've heard from a lot of the tournament directors, including Todd Martin today, is that the problem is really a financial one where you don't get enough TV money to make up for the fact that there will be no fans. The silver lining to that is that it's probably not the case when it comes to the U.S. Open with the big ESPN deal and, and all that they have surrounding that tournament. What have you been hearing uh, from the USTA and the U.S. Open? I know you've been talking to people um, about their efforts to have a tournament. Yeah, I, I think you're right. I mean, I think the U.S. Open is very different in a lot of ways. I mean, the digits on the balance sheets and the, where the revenues come from. I think, honestly, I think ESPN is sort of driving the bus here. I mean, to those of us who live in the New York area, such as yourself, uh, maybe you share my, it seems a little strange to be thinking about holding a tennis event when mm -hmm. we all know what's going on in the ground and we all know what's going on in Queens. I think quite apart from the practical applications, getting the mayor's approval, you know, the, the health and safety. I mean, I think there's an optics question. I'm not sure tennis is, it's a great look when, you know, we're, we're holding tennis tournaments uh, amid a pandemic, but ESPN really seems to want this to happen. And ESPN cuts a very large check to the USDA, one that will single-handedly cover the prize money. Um, so I think people are bending over backwards to at least, I mean, I, I think sort of backing up, I think it's a very healthy effort for tennis. I mean, I think it's a healthy exercise to this is a sport that's often accused of being stodgy and slow to embrace change and slow to innovate so i think it's probably a healthy exercise that suddenly we're talking about having you know no fans at the u.s open and 62 different locker rooms so the players can all change in private and how are we going to do health and safety and transportation and hospitality i mean I, I think it's healthy to go through this I think the whole thing's a little weird, honestly. It shows you the power of TV. It shows you how beholden the USDA is to ESPN. Um, I mean, the other story I hear is ESPN did not want to try and do this thing in November. It might come against football. 15 days of tennis programming is much more appealing in late August and early December than it is in late fall. Um, I mean, I think we're, we're, getting a glimpse of, uh, we're getting a glimpse of just how powerful a force TV is. But mm -hmm. I also think at the end of the day, if, if there's some version of the U.S. Open, it, it beats, beats canceling it. So I, I think we all kind of selfishly, at some level, are, are rooting for this to, to happen. But I'm, it's the, the whole thing's, um, yeah, I, you know, you, part, part of you hopes they pull it off. And the other part is thinking, really, guys? This, <laughs> this is, uh, we're, we're in the middle of May and you see, you know, we have 85,000 deaths and you see what New York looks like and you hear what the governor and the mayor say and you, you're really going to put your eggs in this basket. So we'll, we'll see right. how this goes. Yeah. It's, it's a bit of a, a PR nightmare to, to uh, use all the resources necessary, especially with, with testing uh, that I know that the leagues are concerned about like the, uh, 
like the MLB and the NBA, they, they are worried about that PR, I think. And uh, it's another interesting contrast. I just want to shift to the players and then I'll move on from, from COVID. Um, if you talk to any MMA insider, like, like an Ariel Hawani, they'll tell you all the fighters want to fight. They're all down. They want to yeah. do this. But we've seen resistance from baseball players and basketball players saying, eh, I don't know how far I'm willing to go. I don't know if I want to take a pay cut. I don't know if I want to quarantine. Where do you think tennis players would stand? What sacrifices would they be willing to make in order to play? In keeping with today's theme, individual sports versus team sports. Um, <laughs> there are no guaranteed contracts. I mean, I think, I think a few things. First of all, fighting is one shot, right? You go to Orlando, here's your fight, you're third on the card, you fight, you go home. Tennis is, I mean, these, these majors, they're talking about getting the players here two weeks early. It's two, I mean, you're talking about potentially being here a month. Could you imagine if you had 256 players, so 128 single straw men and women's, they come here and on day three, there are a couple of positive tests. That's a problem. Um, we're not talking about, hey, come, come into town for one match and then you get to go home. We're talking about a possibly one month commitment. Could you imagine if there's some positive tests early in the tournament, what, what's going to happen? I mean, I know that was one of the concerns at Indian Wells. Um, I think that it all depends on what, I mean, that's something else that's being revealed apart from how much TV drives the bus. Something else that's being revealed is that there is a big wage gap. There is income inequality in tennis. So the guy who's ranked number 50, who hasn't earned a dime in prize money in 90 days now, they may be very inclined to play the U S open. Hell I'll lose in the first round and you get 50 grand. I'll, I'll spend 14 days in quarantine for that. Is Roger Federer going to come? Is Rafa Nadal going to come? Is Serena Williams going to come? I think that's a much different story. I don't know what happens to them. But the U.S. Open is the U.S. Open. It's still going to count towards someone's major count. There are a lot of incentives. There are incentives in apparel contracts. I mean, there are all sorts of reasons for people to play. But I, I don't think Roger Federer's calculus is the same as hmm. Hubert Hercosh. So I, I'll be interested to see if we keep having this discussion and if, if the U.S. Open sticks to this plan, what players are going to show up? Uh, you know, there, there are players that are, you know, Roger Federer may be encroaching on a net worth uh, of a billion dollars. And the guy on the side of the net from him may be living paycheck to paycheck. So um, I, I think it's going to be very interesting to see which players are willing to come and which aren't, because I suspect yeah. it won't be everyone. Right. You have, you have totally different perspectives there. One thing uh, I, I want to, uh, I want to challenge you on, on something that I've heard you talk about a lot because I'm a former U.S. Open ball boy. Um, and one of the innovations that I think you've correctly anticipated is that there will no longer be um, ball people handling the players' towels. It's funny, though, because I, I've, I've heard that from a bunch of people. Don't you think it's, it's way more unsanitary for my hands to be all over a towel that the players proceed to wipe their face on? Because I, I, not once was I ever on the court thinking about, and the optics, I understand the optics can be bad. Right. Not once did I feel that it was unsanitary for me, but a couple times I thought about the players. Oh man, I, I mean, you, if you really need to towel off, you put a towel rack on the backs of the courts, you get the blue towel, you get the red towel, walk yourself over and clean yourself off if you need it. Um, I hadn't thought, I mean, I, I guess it's, it's, it's pretty gross for everyone. I mean, part of it is the, the biohazard and uh, 
you know, you see some guy literally I, there, there is a top player who I've literally seen like blow his nose in a towel and toss it at the ball kid who Oof. without, without wearing gloves is catching this snot filled towel and, uh, and scampering off. I, I think you're right. I think it's pretty gross for everyone, but I think it's a pretty easily correctable. I mean, there are players who wonder why we even need that. Um, you play tennis. I play tennis. I, you know, you, you sweat a little, but I, I'm not sure between when an opponent double faults, I don't feel like I need to go back to the fence and towel off. Um, <laughs> I, think it's an e- I think there's an easy fix here. You, you put two towel racks on the back of each court. You get one. Your opponent gets the other. And no, nobody, much less the you know, uh, underpaid people under the age of 18 have to touch anything. Yeah, I, I agree. I wouldn't, like, object if they, if they change the system and they put towel racks back there. But I do feel worse for the players than I do the ball people. So I wanted to see what your reaction to that was. I'll, um, it's funny, though. I was talking – I can't remember who was telling me that. They said if you're from certain countries where there are quarantine rules, tennis is okay. Mm-hmm. Other countries, they really want you to, uh, to use your own tennis balls and no one should touch them. And you can, you can put your you – know, sign your tennis ball so people know it's yours. Can you imagine the U.S. Open where you have you – know, Spain might have stricter rules, so you have an RN tennis ball that only Nadal can use to serve. The opponent, when it's on his side, has to use his foot to scoop it up and hit it back over the net. Um, but the, if the opponent's from the right country, then both players can touch the ball. I mean, I, I think uh, we are going to see a lot of changes in tennis in the immediate future, and I'll be interested to see which of these stick and which of these are uh, sort of precautionary. We get a vaccine and we go back to uh, – everyone handling everybody else's uh, linens. Yeah, it's, it's wild. Um, did you know Ian Eagle was a linen boy? We learned that on, on the show. You just said linens, and it just triggered that thought. Did At the U.S. That. Open. Yeah, you, you should a ask him boy. about that. A linen boy. He was a ball boy, and then he, oh, was, he became a linen boy. So. Okay. Uh, you excited as long as it for didn't the... involve vegetables. No, but, or as long as the linen didn't. Yeah, yeah. right. As long as the linen, yeah, okay. <laughs> P.F. Chang, all right. Anyway, uh, I'll have to ask him about that. Yeah. Uh, are you looking forward to the last dance? For, for those who don't know, um, it's a 10-part Michael Jordan doc, um, basically chron- chronicling um, his career. And uh, I was wondering, John, when you're watching it, does he remind you, mainly talking about his mindset, not his on-court accomplishments, is there a tennis player he reminds you of? Oh, man. Um, I mean, it's funny because I, I, I feel a little like his personality is, is better suited for an individual sport than a team sport. If, if he's an athlete and he's like, oh, I need to find uh, artificial foes and perceived slice to psych myself up, you could say, yeah, I, I sort of see that. If you say, like, this is the guy who's calling Scott Farella ho. You're saying, what, what, what an asshole. Who wants to be this guy's team? Can I ask you a question? Wait, who, who's listening to this podcast? I'm just curious. Uh, Diehard tennis fans who care about, like, how much yeah. Federer should slice. No, no, I, I, I was going to say, you, uh, I, um, the, the, the last dance is a 10-part is a Michael Jordan documentary. To me, these days in this sports yeah. desert, it's like saying uh, b- baseball is a game played on a diamond with bats. But, uh, okay, I'll, let me, uh, no, let me add on to that. It's, it's no, about kidding, tw- 25% United States. Oh, good. Okay. Well, then that's, that's all right. Good. Then then that's the that's responsible. Good job. Um, I, you know, I, I have my own feelings on, uh, on Jordan and this, and, and this doc. Um, I mean, honestly, I, I think a lot of his behavior is very well suited for an individual. This is going to be our theme, our inadvertent theme of the conversation, Gil. Uh, 
it's individual sport athlete stuff. I mean, it's very hard. I mean, right. unless you're as good as Michael Jordan is, who would want to play with this guy? Um, it's, it's very much the behavior you see in individual sports, right? I mean, the, the perceived slight is without Leighton Hewitt's career on that one. Or uh, I'm, I'm trying to think of, I mean, I, I, you know, honestly, if we're talking candidly, I, I see some Serena in there. Um, I, I did a piece maybe last week or two weeks ago, basically saying the one thing I really, I'm watching this film and I'm really admiring Roger Federer, who never took that turn. And what mm-hmm. do we say about Michael Jordan? He's, he's a cold-blooded killer and he's an assassin and he's, you know, he's a hothead. But in a, I mean, it's, you, you never hear Roger Federer defined in those terms. Um, this whole idea that you sort of have to be an asshole to be an elite athlete. Uh, Roger Federer blows that to pieces. I am surprised that Michael Jordan has, you know, Michael Jordan has final cut on this, right? So it's a great, I mean, I'm enjoying it. It's a great documentary. We're all watching it. Um, but it's, it's not journalistic. I mean, I I think Ken Burns Mm -hmm. made this point as well. I mean, this is, and it's great. I'm, I'm happy it's on. If, if the only way to get this footage and to get this done was to have Michael Jordan and Curtis Polk and, SD Portnoy as executive producers have them sign off on it. Great. But um, I keep thinking, boy, if, if I don't think Jordan comes off particularly, uh, particularly well, frankly. And I keep thinking, boy, if, if this is with Jordan's final cut, imagine what the uh, unexpurgated version must, uh, must look like. But no, I, I see a lot of his behavior and psychology in individual sport athletes. And it's a little jarring in a team. I mean, the, in a team dynamic, um, it's much more difficult. I mean, the, the Horace Grant stuff, the Scott Burrell stuff, even, even a couple of the stuff with Pippen. Um, if it were just Michael Jordan on one side of the net and no one else, I, I think it would seem a lot more more natural and more normal. But but tennis players, a lot of the stuff comes straight from tennis. I mean, there's this whole idea of, uh, you know, I mean, I, again, I, I use Serena in the in the best possible way, but the perceived slight and the mm-hmm. creating these artificial enemies that's that's right that's sort of a tennis 101 right there i'm pretty sure jordan um is a roger federer fan i know that he went to see him at the mm-hmm. u.s open a couple years back uh let, let's let's take to the big three for a moment uh i think from from reading your mailbag from listening to your podcast you tend to think that everyone over the age of 30 is pretty much disadvantaged by by this break in time but I'm, I'm not so sure because, you know, there's the biological clock, which never stops ticking. And then there's wear and tear. And I'm almost tempted to, to say that the biological clock isn't quite as significant as the wear and tear that mm-hmm. comes with actually, you know, being on the tour and, and playing tournaments. So I don't know how much these three are actually aging while they sit at home and, and work out. I think that's a great point. And I think, you know, we talk about how tennis gets older and how a generation ago was laughable to win majors in your mid thirties. And now it seems completely normal. I think we just don't know. And I, I do think just as a math exercise, I mean, Roger Federer just needs dry. You know, it's like stock portfolio. I mean, you just need Roger Federer and Serena. Williams, they just need opportunities. If Roger's going to build on 20, if Serena's going to catch Margaret court and you're taking away opportunities, that's sort of, you know, that's, the basis, but this is obviously unprecedented. This is not like returning from an injury where you you're out six months and you have a targeted return date. 
I just think, who knows? I mean, may, maybe, you know, I, I, I wrote this sort of tongue-in-cheek, but I don't know. I mean, Novak Djokovic is a sensitive guy. We know that. He's taken a beating with a couple of PR gaffes. I don't know. Mm-hmm. I mean, maybe that's the kind of thing that sets him back. On the other hand, maybe he's the youngest of the big three. Maybe this is what catapults him past the others. I mean, I, I can tell you the first person that wins a major is going to say, this was a blessing in disguise. It really helped me focus. I tried to make the best of a bad situation. I mean, I think whoever wins majors is going to say this benefited me. And whoever loses is going to say this was a great hindrance. And this is, you know, at, at some level, this is like nothing we've ever seen. I, I think you're, it's a really good point, though. I mean, just sort of intuitively, yeah, it's, it's going to hurt Serena Williams more than Coco Goff. But I don't know. Maybe <laughs> Serena Williams, this is a, a great disguised blessing that she can – I'm just making this up, but she, she can be a wife and a mother without the guilt of travel, and it really clears her head. And you're right, she get that that knee injury she didn't mention, but that dinged her up a little bit in Australia. She can shake that off, and she wins the 2020 U.S. Open in front of 11 fans. I don't know. I mean, it's just it's it's going to be one of the great sort of uh, we we won't know until we see it. Um, again, you can prepare for a lot of things in sports, but this ain't one of them. So. My my answer is who knows. I, I think just mostly as a math exercise, I think the older players are disadvantaged. But, you know, I don't know. Maybe Roger Federer is working out in his home gym and recovering from his knee surgery. And Nick Kyrgios weighs 260 pounds right now. He he doesn't. But um, yeah. who knows? We'll, uh, it, will, it will reveal a great deal. And um, we'll see. I, I get the feeling they're going to hit the ground running. Uh, Novak Djokovic told Graham Bensinger, I don't know if it was yesterday or today, that he straight up intends to to break the Grand Slam record. Do, do you like that out of Djokovic? Nadal certainly I, hasn't been that upfront about it. No, it's funny because he, he said that once before. I think he even said that to Agassi or Agassi says, like, however long I have to play, I have to play. This is what I'm after. And it kind of um, didn't get much pickup. Um, in Full disclosure, Graham just sent me that interview, and I have not listened to it yet, though uh, I'm a big fan of Graham's, and I'm, I'm eager to hear it. Um, no, I, you know, it's, I, I always thought it was a bit of a misstep on Serena's part to state so flatly how badly she wanted to break Margaret Court's mark. I mean, I think it's – again, we talk about Michael Jordan. I mean, Margaret Court won these Australian Opens in 32 draws, and where 29 of the 32 players were Australian, and – it was basically a local national championship and Australia's population was, you know, 8 million people. I, I would hardly say that's comparable, but Serena needed the same way Jordan needed some sort of created goal. Um, Serena did, did much the same thing with this, uh, with this 24 majors. And I think it's it been a bit to her detriment. Uh, I think it's, you know, Roger and Rafa are very, coy about that and whatever it is it is and I'm not really thinking about it and you you know at some level they are I mean everyone sort of knows what the benchmarks are and everybody knows it's it's you know what, what the score in the race is but um I, I don't think it helps Serena to sort of basically target so publicly Margaret Court I think it freights her with extra pressure I think it sort of gives a little bit too much of a tell into where her head is but but I had heard that from Djokovic before, and I'm surprised. And I you know we we all should be blaming ourselves. So apparently, Djokovic said to Andre Agassi, "I'll play as long as I have to play if it means breaking this record." So um, he has expressed that sentiment before. 
Yeah. Well, S- Serena, of course, zero and four in uh, in her last four Slam finals. So that that supports your your point right there. Um, I hate to ask you about last week's news, but I haven't covered it on this platform. The the ATP WTA merger. What's the what's the main benefit of that in your eyes, and what's the main reason why that just might not be uh, be able to come together? Um, I mean, I think the it, it's all about the terms and conditions, right? I mean, I think it it makes sense intuitively. It makes sense. It's made sense for forty years. The benefit is you go out there with this joint product, especially at a time of of media sort of opportunity, but also balkanization. Wouldn't it be great to go to Amazon or Tennis Channel or ESPN and say, men's, women's, two tours, we're going to deliver male audience, female audience. It could be Coco Goff, and it could be 16 years old, and it could be a man 20 years older. It's a great hedge. I mean, it makes a lot of sense. The, the great question mark is sort of what do the economics look like? And when – you know, I mean, you can look, look at the 990s. I mean, this is just, you look at the filings and the ATP's revenues are not the same as the WTA's revenues. How does that play out? My theory the whole time on all this is just forget about a couple of nickels on the table and just grow the damn pie. And I think combining tours is, is the way to do it. And you pay equal prize money at this mixed events and the men probably have a case that they bring in 60% of the sponsorship, whatever it is, you know what? Sometimes you take one for the team and it really would benefit the sport. It'd benefit fans. It would benefit presentation. It would be easier to follow. Just pay everyone the same rate, take the high road, and you figure you'll make it up with the streamlined product. And yes, the men are probably going to leave a few dollars on the table. Sometimes you do that for, uh, for the good of the cause. Yeah. It'll be interesting to see how that plays out. Uh, was that, by from your understanding, and I'll end here, was that an initiative that started before the the pause in the pandemic, or is that something that's been accelerated by by these times? Um, I think both. I think um, yeah, I don't know. As long as, as long as we're talking candidly, I mean, there there are from talking to people, there's sort of two schools of thought. One of them is that. Andrea Gudenzi and, and uh, Cavelli and Massimo Cavelli, the new, two new ATP chieftains, who, who I should point out get very high marks across the board. I mean, a lot of people who have no reason to say nice things are just gushing about these guys. I mean, I think they've really started off on, uh, on a good note. And I think they both recognize that sports live and die by their media rights and the best media package is, is going to benefit everyone. The sort of conspiracy theory is that if the Asia tour, if the Asia swing doesn't happen for the WTA, it's really a financial hit. And the, you know, WTA made this very, very big Asia bet. Uh, We see what the prize money is in Shenzhen for the year end event. And if the WTA doesn't go to Asia, it is very vulnerable. And this is sort of blood in the water and uh, pressure points. And this is much less of a merger than some sort of an acquisition. So that's sort of the, the glass half full is, you have these two progressive male executives that think this benefits the sport overall. And you have the more pessimistic, this is opportunistic and the the WTA is sort of ripe for some sort of acquisition. Yeah. Well, I I hope there aren't too many casualties there, John, this has been tons of fun. We've covered a million things I feel like, and uh, I really appreciate 
you taking some time out of a, a very busy schedule um, at the moment? I uh, appreciate it. Those were great questions. Stick around in tennis. We need uh, young journalistic talent, and we'll, uh, we'll see you at the French Open. How's that? Yeah, I, I like that idea. Anything to promote? Anything to promote. Oh, that the, was the record. Graceful. How about uh, the record? Oh, yeah. The record. Uh, we're doing a new <laughs> podcast in Sports Illustrated. The record. Talked a little Jordan on that. Um, uh, I don't know when this is going up, but we have a, a fun 60 Minutes piece Sunday. And I will say the Tennis Channel, I, I think, has really done itself proud during this, uh, during this crisis. There's a, there's a live show for three hours, noon Eastern. They'll be broadcasting, uh, you mentioned the UTR for the men. There's a UTR event for four women. And I, I think, um, I, I'm not just saying this because I'm an, you know, a proud employee. I, I think Tennis Channel has really um, done itself proud Agreed. These, last, uh, these last few months. Well, thanks, John. I uh, hope to do it again soon. You got it. Thanks. That was great. You know when you're listening to a true crime story that has an unbelievable plot twist that makes you stop in your tracks? That's what our podcast, People Are the Worst, brings you with each episode. I'm Rachel. And I'm Rebecca. We're identical twins who love true crime cases that make you say, didn't see that coming, and we hate the people responsible for them. Listen to People Are the Worst now on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts.